Welcome to this call of uh, ABI's Unsecured Trade Creditor Committee. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI's Executive Director. Today's topic of venue reform, as the uh, promotion of the call, call noted, was the subject of considerable study and discussion by ABI's Commission to Study the Reform of Chapter 11. Indeed, it was the subject of nearly an entire field hearing held in Austin, Texas, where witnesses presented vigorous arguments on both sides, described at pages 310 to 314 of the Commission's final report. That the commissioners could not ultimately reach a unanimous consensus on recommending any changes to the law, as they did in the other 200-plus recommendations in the report, is not a reflection on how carefully the group deliberated these contentious issues. I thought it was important to have this context and background as you listen to the conversation today featuring two of the best advocates for their respective positions on the issue. And so with that, here's the moderator of the call, Paul Haig of Jeffy Rate in Southfield, Michigan. Uh, thank you, Sam. Um, it's uh, my pleasure to uh, be moderating this call today with uh, two distinguished uh, speakers. Uh, first, we have the Honorable Stephen W. Rhodes, and Judge Rhodes is perhaps best known for presiding over the Chapter 9 bankruptcy case of the City of Detroit, Michigan, before retiring from the bench earlier this year. Prior to that case, however, Judge Rhodes served as a bankruptcy judge for the United States Bankruptcy Court for the Eastern District of Michigan for nearly 30 years, presiding over cases large and small. He is a prolific writer and speaker on bankruptcy issues and is a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy. Judge Rhodes served on the Advisory Committee on Avoiding Powers to the ABI's Commission to Study the Reform of Chapter 11, and as noted by Sam, provided testimony to the Commission on the issue of venue reform. Our other speaker is Michael Richmond. Michael also needs no introduction. Michael is a partner in the New York office of Hunton and Williams. Michael focuses on representing Chapter 11 debtors and creditors committees and advises on virtually every aspect of financial distress and bankruptcy. Michael is an active member of the American Bankruptcy Institute and is a past president and executive committee member of the organization. Michael also is a frequent speaker and lecturer on bankruptcy law. He co-chaired the ABI Chapter 11 Reform Commission's Advisory Committee on Section 363 Sales. Uh, this is uh, the most recent in what we intend to be monthly calls of the Unsecured Trade Fairs Committee, talking about topics that we think might be of interest to uh, members of that committee. Uh, the intent, the, the outline of this program is really going to be as file, follows. At the outset, I'm going to give a brief overview of the law on venue as it currently stands. Uh, and then I'm going to turn it over. We're going to have 10 minutes for Judge Rhodes to give the pro-argument uh, on uh, why venue reform should be changed. And then Michael Richmond to give the con. Uh, thereafter, we're going to allow each side five minutes for rebuttal and then open it up to question and answer. And again, the idea here is that this is going to be a friendly debate. We know that there are strong opinions about the venue issue. This program is not meant to be an attack on the ABI Commission report or its members. We really do intend to focus on the merits here. 
So with that, I'll start with, with where the law is currently. The bankruptcy venue statute has uh, been, I think it's fair to say, one of the most heavily debated parts of the bankruptcy law. Uh, prior to 1978, corporations were required to file bankruptcy cases where they had their principal place of business or principal assets for the preceding six months. When Congress enacted the Bankruptcy Code, it also enacted 28 U.S.C. 1408. And that statute generally provides that bankruptcy cases may now be filed in any one of four jurisdictions, a jurisdiction where the debtor, A, is domiciled or its place of incorporation, B, a jurisdiction where the debtor maintains its residence, C, a jurisdiction where the debtor has its principal place of business, or D, the jurisdiction where the debtor has its principal asset. And again, any one of these four options will work. Additionally, a case may be filed in the same jurisdiction as a previously filed case of an affiliate of the debtor. 28 U.S.C. 1412 deals with transfer of venue and provides, quote, a district court may transfer a case or proceeding under Title 11 to a district court for another district in the interest of justice or for the convenience of parties. And this statutory language, many of you probably read, was recently litigated in the Caesars bankruptcy cases where Judge Gross, after noting that venue was proper under the statute in both Delaware and Illinois, determined that the bankruptcy case should be transferred to Chicago. But most of the heat with respect to the venue debate focuses on the filing of large Chapter 11 cases in the Southern District of New York or the District of Delaware. The debate has certainly become more prevalent in recent years with the filing of Houston-based Enron Corporation in New York and the General Motors and Chrysler bankruptcy filings in New York also. Additionally, Washington Mutual, Seattle-based, filed in Delaware, and the Tribune Company, based in Chicago, filed in Delaware. It is estimated that approximately 70% of all large public company Chapter 11 filings are now filed in these two jurisdictions. Most of these filings were permitted under the venue statute because of the provision that allows filings where a company's affiliate is domiciled or incorporated. So, for example, General Motors filed in New York because it had a wholly owned dealership, Chevrolet Saturn of Harlem, which filed first. Chrysler could file in New York because it had a subsidiary, Chrysler Realty, which owned two dealerships in New York, Manhattan Jeep Chrysler Dodge and Yonkers Avenue Dodge. And the Los Angeles Dodgers, who play baseball in California, and there is no Major League Baseball club in Wilmington to host road games, filed their bankruptcy case in Delaware. So critics say that these provisions permit forum shopping on various legal issues such as disfinancing, critical vendors, transfers of intellectual property, and third-party releases, amongst others. Uh, and for our constituents, there's often a concern raised about trade creditors who will need to retain local counsel in the jurisdiction where the case is filed. Uh, but proponents of the current law will say, however, that there is no need to fix something that isn't broken, and that judges and practitioners in New York and Delaware have developed a level of expertise in managing so-called mega-cases. Judge Rhodes and Michael can address both sides of this debate far better than I possibly could, and will do so shortly. So I'll move on. Um, the ABI Commission report, as Sam noted at the outset, did uh, look into the venue issue, issue quite extensively. And the report 
the commission report indicates that commissioners engaged in extensive deliberations concerning the existing venue statute, the merits of the venue debate, and the potential advantages and disadvantages to reforming the statute. The report states that, quote, the commissioners found venue issues among the most difficult and divisive issues considered during the commission project. Ultimately, uh, after a field hearing on venue in which Judge Rhodes testified, the commission concluded that it could not reach a consensus regarding whether reform of the venue stat was, statute was necessary, and if so, what potential reform should be recommended. So the commission report simply provides a short summary of its research and deliberations on the issue. So turning from that background now, I'm going to hand it over to Judge Rhodes. Judge Rhodes, you have 10 minutes to give the case for why the venue statute should be changed. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I, I did agree to participate uh, in this debate because, in my view, uh, our current venue uh, law uh, is the cause of the single most significant injustice in Chapter 11 bankruptcy cases. Uh, under our present law, most large corporations can find a way to file their Chapter 11 bankruptcy cases really in any judicial district. Uh, the Chapter 11 Commission uh, found evidence that 70% of all large public companies uh, file their cases in either the Southern District of New York or the District of Delaware. Uh, so I'd like to, to uh, open up this discussion or debate uh, discussing uh, the purpose of venue in our jurisprudence the impact of uh, venue shopping on judicial legitimacy, uh, the injustice of law shopping and judge shopping, and the inadequacy of uh, transfer of venue to fix the problem of uh, venue shopping. The Supreme Court has, has stated in Leroy versus Great Western United Corp, uh, and for those of you taking notes, that's at 443 U.S. 173, a 1979 case. It observed, quote, in most instances, the purpose of statutorily defined venue is to protect the defendant against the risk that a plaintiff will select an unfair or inconvenient place of trial. Uh, and I think it is fair to say that our current venue law constitutes no restriction, at least in the context of large uh, Chapter 11 cases, and does absolutely nothing to protect creditors against a debtor's selection of an unfair or inconvenient uh, forum. Uh, and this is why I advocate for a reform to require uh, Chapter 11 cases to be filed uh, in the corporation's principal place of business. Uh, in a case uh, called Hertz Corporation versus Friend, 559 U.S. 77, a 2010 case, the Supreme Court defined a corporation's principal place of business as the place where the corporation's officers direct, control, and coordinate the corporation's 
uh, activities. And uh, I, I think it's fair to say, and I conclude that uh, requiring the debtor to file in its principal place of business uh, is uh, more likely to fulfill the purpose that the Supreme Court has identified for venue laws. And, and likewise, creditors and the public can reasonably expect uh, that a debtor should be required to file its reorganization proceeding in the district of the principal place of business, its nerve center, its place where the debtor's officers direct and control and coordinate the debtor's uh, activities. Uh, indeed, nowhere else in our federal system, our federal judicial system, uh, can um, a corporation uh, have uh, such uh, flexibility uh, as uh, the bankruptcy code uh, allows uh, corporate debtors. Uh, the concept of judicial legitimacy is, is one that we judges well, I used to be a judge, <laughs> um, are very concerned about, although lawyers may be less so. It resides at uh, the center of the constitutional doctrine of an independent ju uh, judiciary, uh, and it's the primary reason why people respect and obey the law. Uh, there are many elements necessary to establish judicial le uh, legitimacy, but chief among them is uh, the opportunity for parties who are affected by judicial proceedings to participate in them. Uh, and so whatever heightens that opportunity to participate um, enhances judicial legitimacy, and whatever uh, destroys or impairs that access undermines the, in the integrity of the adjudication process and judicial uh, legitimacy. And, and uh, this, this could be at the core of my objection to our present uh, venue restrictions or lack thereof. Uh, it, is, it is commonly asserted that venue um, choice is necessary to allow corporations flexibility. Uh, this is, of course, code for judge shopping and law shopping. Uh, there are in the normal course, uh, as we all know, conflicts in the judicial circuits on issues of bankruptcy law. This is, this is normal and healthy in our system. But our legal system ought not to allow one party in litigation to choose which courts have more favorable decisions to it and then go and file there. There's no sound or legitimate reason why, for example, a debtor like General Motors, which is headquartered in Detroit and whose collective bargaining agreements are negotiated in Detroit with a union headquartered in Detroit and whose collective bargaining agreements are subject to Sixth Circuit law, why that corporation should be permitted to have its right to reject a collective bargaining agreement in a Chapter 11 case subject to Second Circuit law just because it had a defunct dealership in Harlem. There's not even a single local of the UAW union in the entire Second Circuit. Surely it was not within the reasonable expectation of the parties to that collective bargaining agreement when they executed it that it might be subject to Second Circuit law. 
rather the law applicable to a debtor's bankruptcy case ought to be the law applicable in the state of the principal place of business without an opportunity to choose uh, other law. As the Supreme Court stated in Gulf Oil Corporation versus Gilbert, 330 U.S. 501 from 1947, in cases in which, the, uh, which touch the affairs of many persons, there is reason for holding the trial in their venue and reach rather than in remote parts of the country where they can learn of it by report only. There is a local interest in local controversies decided at home. And finally, I'd like to talk about the inadequacy of um, the transfer of venue provisions. The Chapter 11 Reform Commission found uh, or stated that relatively few motions to transfer venue or to dismiss cases based on venue are filed, and you can understand why. For creditors to protest, they often need to hire local counsel, as Paul mentioned, and they need to mount what amounts to an expensive lawsuit or, or motion or litigation at the inception of the case to seek to change venue. But uh, as we all know, bankruptcy cases often have a number of important uh, issues uh, decided in the first few days of the case. And judges often feel that by the end of that first week, the case is already theirs, and they are understandably reluctant to transfer venue elsewhere. And smaller creditors are, of course, the ones who are disenfranchised by a bankruptcy filing in a distant, uh, distant forum. There will always be enough money for larger creditors uh, to defend their interests no matter where the case is filed, but smaller creditors are the ones uh, who are disenfranchised. Beyond that, I would note that it's also doubtful that after a change of venue, the law of the transferee circuit applies. Now, that may seem like a remarkable statement but the Supreme Court has twice held that that, is the re that that is the result, that when a case is transferred from one circuit to another, the case of the, uh, the law, excuse me, the law of the transferor circuit applies. And those two cases are Van Dusen versus Barak, 376 U.S. 612, a 1964 case, and Ferenz v. John Deere, 494 U.S. 516. Now, those were cases that involved civil litigation, and in one case, the transfer was initiated by the plaintiff, and in the other case, the transfer was initiated by the defendant. And in both cases, the court held it didn't matter who initiated the transfer. The law of the transferor circuit applies. Now, defenders of our current bizarre system um, point out uh, with some glee that from 2006 to 2012, the District of Delaware um, granted motions to transfer venue in 69.2% of the cases in which such motions were filed. That sounds like a great record until you dig down into what's behind it. It turns out that in those seven years, what we are talking about uh, is a total of 13 motions to change venue, uh, of which nine were granted. Uh, and um, I, didn't, I didn't take the time to research it, but I wonder how many cases 
were venues shopped into the District of Delaware during that time, and what percentage of those cases constituted these 13. I expect it was a very, very small percentage. Finally, on the issue of, of judge shopping, uh, I have to say, in defense of my for former colleagues, uh, that the law presumes, and really conclusively so, that every judge is equally competent to handle every bankruptcy case uh, that can be presented uh, to uh, that judge. Uh, of course, the bar perceives otherwise, and their perception is the basis for their assertion that the judges in two of our 91 districts are somehow better qualified at these more complex cases. Of course, to a great extent, that's a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. Uh, on the other hand, I do think there may be some merit in a system that uh, establishes uh, a selection process uh, by which more experienced judges are appointed to the larger and more complex Chapter 11 cases. But venue shopping is not the way to accomplish that result. Uh, venue shopping and judge shopping need to be separated. Venue shopping needs to be stopped, uh, a system by which qualified judges are appointed to these cases is certainly uh, a subject uh, on which um, debate, and I believe ultimately consensus could be reached. Uh, so that's my opening. Michael? Um, thank you, Judge. Um, well, we've had this discussion before, uh, perhaps more than once, uh, and uh, it's useful because uh, you never stop thinking about it. And I, I often think that Judge Rhodes' argument has a much higher hurdle and is much more difficult to make because we're 30 years into the bankruptcy code. And I, I wonder what it would be like to be debating this at the beginning, before the law was set. Because to a certain extent, the problem is that you're trying to take away our toys. We, we, have, we have all of these marvelous tools that we can use as advocates to assure success. And, and so before you even start talking about transparency, judicial legitimacy, what debtors' lawyers are hearing is, you, you want to take away my toys and my tools. And, I, and as I thought about that, it, it seemed to me that part of the reason for the conflict in positions, because I could argue both sides and to a certain extent while I'm advocating the position for status quo, I'm not opposed to change. Um, but I understand why there's resistance to it, and I think part of it is that there are perhaps different objectives that people see for the bankruptcy laws. There's not, I don't think there's a clear consensus on one purpose of the law. So, so while I would agree that public confidence and transparency and what Judge Rhodes calls judicial le legitimacy is important, I also think that maximizing the chances of a debtor's successful reorganization is also a very strong policy. Uh, and I also think that consistency of result is important, and I want to pause on that to amplify a point that Judge Rhodes made, which is that we don't have a national bankruptcy court. 
We have 91 districts with different rules and uh, 11 circuits with different rules and decisions. And, and so when a case comes to a debtor's council, the debtor's council, what's the first and most important thing that that council is trying to determine is where can I most assure a successful reorganization? And that involves looking at law and decisions. Quite legitimately, if you know that there's going to be a collective bargaining decision uh, that has to be made and the law is more favorable in the Second Circuit than in the Sixth Circuit, I'm not disagreeing with Judge Rhodes' general statement that it seems awful that a company that has its entire universe in Detroit can get a Second Circuit decision on that with virtually no presence there. But from the standpoint of the debtor's counsel trying to assure successful rehabilitation, reorganization, there's an obligation to consider that. And there's an obligation to, to go to that jurisdiction if it's going to help the case to succeed. Now, in the cases that Judge Rhodes cited, um, with the quotes about the validity of form shopping or invalidity of form shopping and the unfairness to a defendant being dragged into an inconvenient forum, those are bilateral disputes for the most part, um, where clearly the defendant in the suit uh, needs protection from being dragged into a forum that is otherwise expensive, inconvenient, um, and punitive. But Chapter 11 is a collective action. And while creditors may not be able to just walk down the street to the courthouse, if the creditors indeed are located in the same jurisdiction, that, given the reality of modern commercial businesses and multinational businesses and many of the larger cases in the United States, um, creditors are all over the place. They aren't necessarily in the same jurisdiction where the company is headquartered. But whether it's creditors or union members or members of the public that have an interest, uh, most bankruptcy courts have telephonic hearings now and allow for participation by phone so that it isn't necessary to travel to the courtroom itself. And while I would agree that there is some difference between listening in, uh, on a hearing on the phone and being there in person, I don't think it's enough to warrant a change in the law uh, that would restrict the numbers of choices that a debtor's counsel would have. Now, so I mentioned laws, principles, and practices in different jurisdictions. There's also uh, court experience. Now, again, I agree with Judge Rhodes that there is a presumption that every judge is equally capable uh, and equally experienced. But as a lawyer, as an advocate representing a debtor, it's my duty, it's my professional and ethical obligation to candidly evaluate in terms of my client's opportunity to succeed, whether a particular jurisdiction or judge is going to be better or worse for the outcome. And I have to say in all candor that there are some judges in some courts that are not as capable and efficient as judges in other courts. And when I'm choosing where to be among the choices that I am legally allowed, when I'm choosing where to be, what is it that I want the most? I want 
certainty of outcome. I want to know where I'm going to have the best chance of succeeding. Now, this practice, this didn't just happen overnight when the bankruptcy code was invented. And to a large extent, I think we find ourselves where we are today by virtue of history developing in maybe in unintended ways. In the early days of the bankruptcy code, the biggest bankruptcy shops were in New York. And I think when the big corporations sought the most experienced bankruptcy counsel, the New York counsel preferred to have the cases in their home court where they knew the judges best. And then they acquired experience, and that becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's, I don't think you have a situation where New York and Delaware lawyers are saying, oh, you, know, we're, you should come to us because we're more experienced, but they became experienced by this self-fulfilling prophecy of having the cases filed there early and having results that debtors' counsel felt that they could better guide with certainty of outcome on the other side. So I think that while, again, I, I acknowledge from an academic standpoint that all judges are equal and equally capable and that if any judge anywhere in the country who had the opportunity that the New York and Delaware judges have had would probably be equally capable. When I'm evaluating the choices I have today, I have to say I, I want to be able to go where I think I'm going to have the greatest chance of success. There's also a, a legitimate argument that um, it's beneficial to companies reorganizing to, uh, to be where uh, – to, to, for the lawyers to file in courts that are proximate to where their firms are. Uh, there are expenses involved in that. Uh, and, um, and I also will say briefly that, uh, that while there's a great deal of um, hue and cry about whether uh, fees are a driver in uh, decisions on where to file cases, my experience and, and my, including panels with many, many uh, debtors' counsel that have far greater experience in bigger cases than I, is that while you always are going to be thinking of that, you know, I'm not going to say that people don't think about fees, I don't think that whether one court or another is more generous on fees is a legitimate driver of where cases file. First and foremost, I think the debtor counsel decision is based on the law and based on efficiency and, and based on getting a case completed with a particular amount of time and maximizing the chances for recovery. Now, uh, you know, we talked, uh, Judge Rhodes talked about the venue transfer statute. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have to agree with that. It, it is, it's difficult, I think, to get venue transferred when there's cause. So I, I don't think I can easily refute that debate point by saying, oh, there's no reason to change the law because there's already a venue transfer statute. It's clear to me uh, that the judges before whom cases are filed become invested in them, uh, and, uh, and, and, and however subjectively it works, uh, I think that once the action is unfolding, there's probably a reluctance to transfer. So having said that, to me, you know, I think that, that there could be uh, reform of the venue transfer laws that might give that might tilt the playing field without changing the rules on where you could file, might tilt the balance a little bit by creating different presumptions and different factors that would make it easier for venue to be changed. But ultimately, we're talking about collective action that is very different than bilateral litigation where the venue rules are inextricably tied with the ability to maximize a successful reorganization. And the more places that a company can then file, 
the better it is for that, for maximizing that um, that chan those chances. Um, and it is judge shopping, and it is form shopping. There's no running around that. There's no there's no escaping the fact that that's what's happening. Well, and and I heard Judge Rhodes makes a very strong statement that there's no I wrote that down. There's no sound or legitimate reason why a corporation should be able to do that. I would submit that the sound or legitimate reason why a company that has Detroit collective bargaining agreements and presence and creditors should choose to be in New York because of a, a dealership, that the legitimate reason is what I said is, is that one would have to accept that it is an important, if not the most important, purpose of the bankruptcy code to allow for successful reorganization. And if the lawyers decided, based on their research, that what they wanted to do with a collective bargaining agreement was going to be more achievable in New York than it would be in Detroit, then to me, as an advocate, that's legitimate. Now, you know, I understand in a legislative context, someone might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. But to way, the way I would recommend addressing it is that's a situation where if, if some presumptions were added in or the venue transfer statute was modified, um, that that could help. I was surprised to learn recently that um, under the venue transfer statute, you can transfer venue to a district where you couldn't have even filed in the first place, um, which, which kind of amazed me so that you could you could go somewhere where the company couldn't have been venued um, under the statute um, I actually had a case that that issue came up in so um, I think that depending on where what you think the most important purpose of the code is and I and I, to me the debate is between maximizing rehabilitation versus judicial legitimacy and public integrity and transparency, and I, I don't mean to minimize any of that, but I, I believe that because of, the, because of electronic participation and the dispersal of creditors, that, those are, that that is not as important a counterweight as it might once have been, uh, that to me uh, the statute works, the principal venue provisions work as they are, and I would support modification of the transfer statute, but not the rules and provisions for where you can file a case to begin with. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Um, Judge Rhodes, uh, take five minutes yourself for a rebuttal. Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, my uh, friend and boss in the indubitable equivalence ABI band uh, misinterprets not only my argument but this debate. This, this debate is not about whether the choices that attorneys now make under our present venue laws are legitimate choices or not. That's not what this is about. Uh, I, I agree 100% that given our present venue laws, it would be malpractice for attorneys not to engage in the kinds of judgments that they now engage in. They have to do that, and I recognize that. The real question in this debate is whether the law should allow for those kinds of judgments to be made. That's the real debate here. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly with the notion that 
consistency in the law, and especially in bankruptcy law, promotes efficiency and promotes reorganization. And we should structure our legal process to promote uh, consistency. Uh, I was uh, uh, a member of the bankruptcy appellate panel for the Sixth Circuit. Um, I engaged in that work because I thought bankruptcy appellate panels uh, would promote consistency in uh, bankruptcy appellate decisions. I'm not sure it's been successful. I, I think that's a debatable question. Michael pointed out that there is no national bankruptcy appellate court, to which I respond, let's have a national bankruptcy appellate court. If consistency is that important, and I agree it is, Let's have a national bankruptcy appellate court, or at least let's have it in those cases that need it, like the large national corporations. So if that's the objection to changing venue, let's address that objection with a rifle shot, not a shotgun shot. So I'm all for that. And, and, and let's uh, staff that court with experienced bankruptcy judges. I'm all, I'm all for that. Um, on the issue of um, changing the change of venue statute to make it easier to change venue, what that solution overlooks is the fact that whether it's easier to change venue or not, it still takes time and money to initiate that process and to see it through to the end. Uh, and um, both of those, along with what will still be the natural reluctance of the judge first assigned the case to change the venue, uh, to see any significant uh, change in the number of such motions uh, or the percentage uh, that grant uh, such, such motions. Um, Michael may well be right that ultimately this debate is about why do we have a bankruptcy process. That's a very interesting observation. Is it to maximize the likelihood of a successful reorganization? Or is it to do that with as much fairness as we can to all of the other constituents uh, who have an interest in the outcome of the bankruptcy? I've always assumed it's the latter, that, that, uh, that bankruptcy is about nothing if it's not about process, and process for all concerned, not just for the benefit of the party initiating the process. Um, ultimately, my conclusion is that venue shopping um, forum shopping, judge shopping, demeans our bankruptcy system. It certainly demeans our bankruptcy judges. 
and the court competition that results inevitably leads to at least procedures, if not substantive decisions, that favor those parties who make the venue decisions. And that's, that's just not right. Well, I won't concede that I misperceived your argument, Judge Rhodes, which is why I referred a few times to the problem of taking our toys away. Uh, and and, and I, I, I want to, I guess, add a point or two to that. Um, I, I think that to a certain extent we have a problem in that we've ha we have a system that's grown up to be what it is, and there could be huge consequences to making a change like eliminating state of incorporation as a venue choice, consequences to uh, companies that chose to uh, file in Delaware uh, because their counsel may have advised them that that was a venue that would be useful if the worst happened, um, consequences to uh, the Delaware bar. Uh, I, I can't even conceive of what would happen to the large number of law firms and lawyers in Delaware. Um, I, I have to express some sympathy to that. Um, and uh, I don't think it would have that much of an impact on the New York bar. Um, but uh, I, I, there are consequences to making those changes. But the biggest one, uh, which is why I, I said taking the toys away, is losing choices in terms of where you go to maximize value. Because if you eliminate the choices, then what you're really doing is forcing companies to file bankruptcy in jurisdictions where there may be unfavorable law and where they may be facing uh, much higher hurdles to reorganize successfully. Uh, and changing the rules of the game in the, in the middle that make it harder for them to reorganize. Um, so what it comes down to, to me, in listening, Judge, to your points is, uh, because I think to you the most important point is fairness to constituencies and participation, is that I, I'm not persuaded that there's real harm being done to creditors or to um, other constituents. That you, There may be occasional cases um, where there are people that would have participated more fully if the cases hadn't been filed in, in jurisdictions foreign to them. But I think for the most part, we have the technology available and the economic interests are able to hire counsel if they need to, to participate uh, at least electronically in cases where it's hard to see how there's real unfairness if, the, if, if, if that comes at the ability to have maximum choice in where to file. So I, I just don't, I'm just not persuaded that there is unfairness to the constituencies and their ability to participate. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, I, just, don't, I just don't feel it. I, I've, I've been in cases, I, I had a case in Nevada where pro se parties from Pennsylvania were able to participate fully in the case. Uh, and um, it wasn't a venue case, but I'm just pointing out that they, without lawyers, they were able to figure out, with the court's assistance, a way to be fully involved. And they were fully involved and litigated issues um, for years, um, remotely. Um, so so I, I agree. I, I understand it's about whether the law should be changed, but I just can't get my arms around losing the toys and losing the choices 
which is why I would favor reform in the transfer statute that, and we haven't really discussed that or developed it, but to me, that's a way that could address some of these concerns that might set up certain presumptions that might give courts more tools, maybe even some requirements under certain conditions so that more cases could be more easily transferred. Um, I agree that the statistics from Delaware aren't very persuasive. It's only 13 motions. Um, and, uh, and I think that one of the reasons that you don't see more venue transfer motions is because a lot of lawyers decide that it's not worth filing them because they don't think there's a great chance for their success. And so on a cost-benefit basis, they advise their clients not to go forward. So I, I would conclude by saying, you know, let's, let's keep the rules the way they are but work on modifying the transfer statute so that cases that are manifestly unfair to constituents where the, where the, where the hypotheticals posited by Judge Rhodes actually exist and can be shown with evidence that there could be more transfers than there have been. Okay, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Judge Rhodes. Um, we wanted to allow some time at the end here for questions from those of us who are in the audience. And uh, so, Martha, I think maybe you have to unmute everybody, and then we're going to try and take uh, questions from the audience, if anybody has any. And um, uh, assuming we do have questions, we'll take them one at a time, identify who you are, and... Um, and uh, we'll go through them. I, I gather that everyone agrees with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is Lisa Gretschko, and I, I really enjoyed everyone's comments, and I have an observation. Um, I've handled cross-border cases, and every once in a while the um, folks, um, our, our Canadian counterparts, the, those are the cross-border cases I've been most involved in, uh, would be amazed when I would say, well, you know, I, I need an extra day to make service because I have to make service on the entire list, and it's like, you know, a 1,000 people. And there would be laughter when they'd say, wait a minute, you have to serve everybody? And I was, they said, it, you know, it really isn't the bankruptcy just for the secured creditors, just for the big players. And I said, no, it, it really isn't. I mean, the bankruptcy is for everybody. Um, and that's when I started to look at the venue provisions through that prism. Um, having gone through, I mean, I'm right outside Detroit, and I have reorganized companies with union involvement, um, both here in Detroit and in other um, places. And it is really disenfranchising to the, the people who are greatly impacted when they can't um, go to the courtroom and participate in the proceedings. And personally, I, I, I find it um, very difficult to explain, and I think that distance between um, the ability to see and participate firsthand in the process, um, the distance between that and what we have now um, makes the process sort of unreal or unacceptable or more like magic as opposed to jurisprudence, and I think that's a problem. Hey, Lisa, um, it's, it's Michael. So, I, you know, look, I appreciate what you're saying. I've been in cases. I had a case where I represented a debtor in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, it was a company in Pennsylvania, though, so it was maybe a 90-minute, two-hour drive from the company headquarters, uh, and their employees wanted to participate in the case, and they came down to Delaware because they could. It was closer. 
And there were a couple of hearings that they wanted to be in the courtroom, and it, I think it made an impact on the proceeding. I'm speaking against my argument by saying this, but I think it made an impact on the proceeding that they were there. But I, I also think that um, the vast number of cases uh, of corporate reorganization cases do not have that factor, do not have uh, employees and unions who would go to court if they could uh, versus listening in on the phone and otherwise. A lot of, a lot of the cases we have now are, are quick 363 sales where the company's ownership is just changing hands and the employees are unaffected. Um, you know, every case is, is a little bit different. Um, so I find it hard. I, I, I can't wrap my arms around a general principle that just because employees or unions in some cases can't participate as well in a foreign jurisdiction case that we should change the rules for everybody. And that, that's why I, I come back to thinking that maybe the better way to think about this is to work on the transfer statute to try to take that into account. Because I think, to me, it, it would be legitimate to say to the court in New York, hey, the, the, all of these employees and all these union members in Detroit want to participate and they want to go to court and they want to be there, and, and that needs to be given some weight. Um, and, you know, and maybe that's why I said the statute for it to work. It would have to be something more than just complete subjective discretion, because if the judge is invested in the case, even having that as a factor isn't going to assure a transfer. But, but, but thank you for the comment. It does, I must say, it does feel disenfranchising, um, not only to the rank and file, but um, to the lawyers. I mean, it's, you, you made the comment, Michael, about the, you know, the number of lawyers in Delaware and, you know, you, you would be worried about what would happen, and, and I do see that. What about the lawyers in the whole rest of the country? Well, but what, what is to prevent lawyers anywhere in the country from participating in a case anywhere in the country? I mean, you, you don't restrict your practice to just cases that are in your home court. No, I don't, but I get local counsel when they're outside my home court. Well, you don't have to in all cases. I, I, there are a lot of states that allow um, uh, bar admission in the federal district court, which gives you the right to practice and appear in the bankruptcy courts without local counsel. What's the local counsel rule in Delaware and New York? Uh, in Delaware and New York, you are required to have local counsel, although I've seen judges waive that uh, it, on request, uh, and maybe it should be changed. Um, but I, I have been admitted to the district court in Colorado, I'm admitted to the district court bar in Connecticut. I have a case in Connecticut right now, and I'm appearing there. My firm is appearing there without local counsel. Judge Rhodes, this is uh, this is Paul. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts on uh, you just you just presided over the Detroit bankruptcy case, which is sort of the opposite scenario. Of course, venue is different in the Chapter Nine case, but in that case, it was filed in Detroit. And uh, the debtor, the retiree committee, and most of the major creditors were represented by firms from out of state. And so how does the whole dynamic that we're talking about here play out there? Um, and, and, and does that color your viewpoint at all? Well, uh, the, the Detroit case very strongly reinforced my view <coughs> that uh, – the venue law ought to require venue in the place that maximizes the chance of access and participation by all of the parties who are impacted by the outcome of the case. Uh, in virtually all of the hearings that I held, um, residents of the city of Detroit 
sat in the courtroom. Uh, and in several of the hearings, I invited their direct participation. Um, and, of course, if that case had been venued in Delaware, that would have been impossible. And, I, and worse than that, I think the outcome of the case would have been seen as illegitimate by the city if it had been venued anywhere else. Now, having said that, um, in, in, in very significant uh, ways, Chapter 9 is very different from Chapter 11, so I, I do not hold out that uh, the, the Detroit experience should, should really serve as uh, any justification for changing the Chapter 11 venue laws. It, it's, just, it's, it's such a different kind of a case. I have a tough question to ask Judge Rhodes before he leaves, and he has to leave right at the top of the hour. I'm just letting you know, Paul. Um, it's a tough question. Do you think that the General Motors and Chrysler cases were successful reorganizations? And that's not a question. That's, I'm not saying would they not have also been successful in Detroit, but were they successful in New York? Well, um, I, I'm, I'm going to politely decline to answer that question because I, I don't want this debate to be about the potential criticisms of any decisions that any parties or any judges made in any particular case. But let, let, me, let me modify it. What I was going for in asking it was um, participation. So those cases were away from most of the employees and they were away from the union members and they were away from the at least the local public where those companies have been identified with the city of Detroit for so long. And what, was there a negative impact from those parties not being able to be able to participate as fully as no. they would have right. that, in that's New York? A, all right. That question is a legitimate question and, and the answer is we don't know. We'll never know because uh, we don't know what advantage um, people would have taken if they had had the opportunity to participate in a case filed in their principal place of business. There's, there's no way to know that. All we can do is offer the opportunity. Uh, and uh, in, in those two cases, we didn't. Yeah. I'm sorry for putting you on the spot. It just occurred to me in the nature of yeah. the discussion. I was curious as to what you thought. Time for one more. This is uh, Doug Rosner. Um, I, I mean, it probably isn't time to answer the question, but the focus on um, venue and geography and ability to participate in the uh, hearings by telephone, I think this is what, what I see as, an, as, to me, the major concern, and that is the growing perception that the system itself can be manipulated because a debtor has so many choices of forum that when a debtor chooses its forum, it's, there's, there's sort of a, an assumption and a growing indifference among the creditor body because the, there's, a, there's a feeling that the debtor chose that forum for a reason and it wasn't to help me and it wasn't, it, it, it's not obviously not a forum that would be in my interest and 
and and there's a feeling that the outcome has been predetermined. And so, um, and whether it means it's a form 100 miles away or 3,000 miles away, the perception that someone can freely forum shop um, does lead to disenfranchisement and difference and people questioning the integrity of the system itself. And we presented anecdotal evidence to that effect to, to the ABI Commission at, at the hearings in Austin, um, both through some testimony, affidavit testimony and the like, as well as articles in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and elsewhere, where um, there was open questioning about the integrity of the, of the system. Um, and then you see it in the numbers. And um, so I, I think as far as the numbers, as far as cases and where they're filed and seven out of 10 cases are form shopped and et cetera, et cetera. And I think um, the focus on, on technology and, and ability to telephone, uh, uh, participate in the hearing by phone, I think misses what I think is the greater uh, concern. So I guess it's more of a statement than a question. Well, yeah, and I appreciate the point. I think it would be useful if somebody somehow did a study on that because I hear the words and I appreciate what you're describing in terms of perception, and, and we all know of some cases where um, there has been a questioning uh, you know, of a particular case. But I, I would like to, to know if this perception is really widespread uh, where, where the integrity of the system is being undermined. So I, I, can, I, can, I hear the argument, and I, I, and I know Judge Rhodes feels that way, but I, I haven't seen, uh, other than anecdotal evidence, a, a study that would make me fear for the integrity of the system in a way that would cause me to change my position about the reform of the statute. The problem with that answer is by the, when you get to that answer, it's too late anyway. But it's, um, it's very hard to measure through statistical numbers, but I think we're seeing among um, the growing number of um, people who are getting involved in this bankruptcy venue reform movement, that there's a growing number of anecdotal stories. There's a growing number that just among my clients, general, um, their attitude when cases, when companies flee to other jurisdictions. Thank you to our moderator and committee co-chair, Paul Haig of J.C. Rate, Hewer & Weiss, for keeping us on track today and our two lively speakers, Judge Rhodes of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Eastern District of Michigan and Michael Richmond of Hunnan and Williams. The full commission report can be accessed at commission.abi.org. July's UTC committee call will cover make-whole provisions. Plans are being finalized, and your invitation will come through the listserv soon. Thank you for joining us today.